As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So obviously, uh, Tracy, we've been uh, talking a lot about chips lately, but for all the episodes we've done, we haven't hit like what is sort of, a, um, I guess I would say, the elephant in the room or the gorilla in the room that keeps coming up uh, over and over again. Yeah, we've been going at it. I would say from a U.S. perspective, very focused on the troubles at Intel, but we haven't really talked about the success story that is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, better known as TSMC. Yeah, exactly right. So every episode that we do, it sort of comes back to them, what a juggernaut they've become. And of course, you know, the sort of basic story is that manufacturing chips is extremely hard. Uh, it's extremely expensive, and it's uh, very difficult to do at scale. Intel um, is one of the rare companies that designs and manufactures its own chips, but that for a lot of these companies uh, that are sort of exploding, gaining market share, they're um, having Taiwan Semi manufacture them, and Taiwan Semi is getting extremely good or is extremely good at uh, manufacturing and maybe uh, pulling away from Intel to some extent in terms of its manufacturing capabilities. Right. And I think they actually invented the foundry model, which, you know, this idea of just manufacturing chips, which keeps coming up over and over and over again in all of our conversations as, you know, one reason the entire semiconductor industry has changed and one reason why Intel is struggling. But the thing I find kind of amazing, like, in 2021, we all take it for granted that TSMC is this massive player in the semiconductor industry in the world, really. But I find it really, really uh, noteworthy and you know, somewhat surprising in retrospect that what is a single company on an island has emerged to really dominate chips that are now vital to all sorts of things. So computers, smartphones, cars, everything. I think TSMC manufactures a little over half of the world's chips. So it's not quite a monopoly, but again, like they are the juggernaut in the room, as you put it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a, I mean, it's such a pivotal company for a lot of reasons. I mean, you mentioned cars. There was just a story this week, we're recording this January 12th, by the way, there was just a story this week 
about how car manufacturers around the world are actually running into supply constraints because they can't get chips because the chip manufacturers decided to reduce their production of automotive chips during the crisis in the spring on the expectation that demand wasn't going to be there and now they haven't ramped up. Taiwan Semi, uh, they're going to, they're actually reporting earnings this week expected to be very strong. Earnings are soaring. The stock is soaring. And then, of course, because it's in this strategic position and because Taiwan itself is in this uh, strategic position, obviously, uh, between the U.S. and China and the rollover, its status, it's just an incredibly um, central player and sort of necessary to understand the story. Right. A big player in tech, a big player across multiple supply chains in a bunch of different industries, and certainly a player in geopolitics as well. So we really got to talk more Taiwan Semi, and we have the perfect guest to do that, someone who knows all about the company, who's been covering them for a long time, since long before they were the dominant player uh, they are today. We're going to be speaking to Tim Culpin. He is a tech columnist at Bloomberg Opinion been with us at Bloomberg for 15 years, and he's actually been covering uh, the tech industry from Taipei specifically for the last 21 years, so knows everything about uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, where it came from, how it got to be this uh, important player. Um, so, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for your time, guys. Good to talk to you. Tim, how would you describe the importance of Taiwan Semiconductor in the world right now? Well, as you assessed just saying, they are so huge. Tracy pointed out they they create uh, you know such a large share of the world's uh, chips. There is probably not a single device in the world that doesn't have TSMC in there somewhere. Wow. Whether it's a car, the iPhone, of course, famously, uh, but even some really unimportant, boring things like a temperature sensor here or some LED light array there. They do so much of the world's products. They're in. They're basically everywhere. And so, if they were to stop production tomorrow, uh, I think the global technology industry would grind to a halt very, very quickly. It's so. I mean, I mentioned this in the intro, but we take it as a given that this one country has such a big position in um, global manufacturing in the global supply chain. How did this actually come about? Or let me rephrase that. Let's start at the beginning. How did TSMC actually start? Well, the story of TSMC is in many ways the story of Taiwan's electronics uh, industry. Uh, it was founded by Morris Jung himself uh, back in 1987, but the, the seeds of Taiwan's semiconductor industry predated that by about uh, 14 or 15 years when uh, an organization was set up by the Taiwan government back then in 1973 called ITRI, the Industrial Technology Research Institute. And at the time, the government realized that technology, uh, and not specifically semiconductors, because semiconductors were relatively new, but uh, integrated circuits were going to be big. The other big area for Taiwan at the time was plastics. And Formosa Plastics is one of the world's behemoths in the plastics industry. And of course, you, you may remember back when you were a kid, you'd have these cheap plastic toys that were made in Taiwan. Barbie dolls, for example, were made in Taiwan for many, many years. So they were the two kind of twin engines of Taiwan's future. And the government knew that. 
And so they started getting into it through a government uh, institute, spending money on it, and then working with uh, the Americans and to a lesser extent Japanese uh, and Europeans to transfer that technology to Taiwan to be made in Taiwan. So the first ships made out of Taiwan uh, really were, were rolling off the presses or the fabs uh, in the mid-70s. And TSMC came along in, in the mid to late 80s. So there was, it was already underway. But as uh, Joe pointed out, it was the, the, the foundry uh, of foundries. It was the first one to decide that offering a pure manufacturing solution so that clients don't need to have factories and TSMC would do it for them without designing their own chips, only purely manufacture for somebody else. That was very, very new. It was a, it was a ridiculous concept at the time because, you know, at the time, uh, Jerry Sanders of AMD later said in that famous line that real men have fabs. <laughs> at the time, you designed and you manufactured. You did them both, Cypress and Faraday and, uh, uh, sorry, Freescale and all those other companies, of course, Intel being one of them, they did both. AMD did both. And it was only... After TSMC came along and said, hey, actually, you don't need to. We can do it for you. That changed a lot of people's minds, and it really turned Silicon Valley around. So where did that idea come from? I mean, wh what was the sort of um, realization that this model could be powerful? Making to order has always been part of uh, you know Taiwan's industrial DNA uh, going back many, many years. Uh, you, you probably also know the Foxconn. Right. Which makes, uh, which makes your iPhone, is also essentially an OEM. They manufacture for others. And Foxconn, which was getting going at around about the same time, uh, started off making uh, basic plastic TV knobs. Uh, Terry Guo, who founded that, was really a plastics guy. He wasn't really an electronics guy. He was a plastics guy. And so that was pretty much Taiwan's DNA. Don't do the design work. Don't do the branding. Don't do any of that. Just, hey, America. Hey, Japan. Hey, Europe. Bring us your stuff, your designs. We'll make it for you cheaper, quicker, uh, and all of that. And and so semiconductors at the time were the next thing in that area. And you know it was it was also in a similar period of time that uh, what is now known as Acer started doing IBM uh, PC clones uh, and well actually manufacturing for IBM. So it's the same kind of period. Acer and it was a little bit later, but it's the same general generation of Taiwan. But really, the founding idea came from Morris Jung himself, who, who, who went to Taiwan at the age of the ripe old age of 54 to take up a retirement job. Uh, it's not well known, but in fact, Morris Jung is not Taiwanese. He was born in China and left China at the height of the Civil War in 1948. He was in Hong Kong for a, a brief stint and then found himself in the US and, and went on to study at MIT. And he spent a quarter of a century at TI, Texas Instruments. And it was only after leaving Texas Instruments that the Taiwan government invited him to Taiwan to lead ITRI. He wasn't the founding chairman of, of ITRI, but he was, I think, the, the third uh, president of ITRI. And, uh, and he came in and was brought to Taiwan, uh, not as a Taiwanese, but as actually an, an American citizen. And, uh, and Morris Jung got the idea of, of doing a, a foundry model. And that was really the start of the whole process. So how difficult was it to get the foundry model off the ground at the very beginning? Because as you point out, that wasn't how people had been making semiconductors. Uh, historically, they'd been doing the designing and manufacturing in-house. How much of a adaptation or change was it for the industry? And how difficult was it to get clients on board to actually go to them and say, hey, we're going to make your chips for you? 
It was it was very difficult. And Morris Jung recognized that. You know, he'd worked in the American semiconductor industry for 20 or 30 years. He knew that they were his people. Uh, and so when he started TSMC, one thing that he knew early, early on is that although he had Taiwan government backing and there was, you know, very deep pockets, he knew that he needed to get industry on board. So he went hunting for an industry player that would be a, a cornerstone investor. He wanted to get someone on board that would take a 20, 30, 40% early stake in the company so that he could really make sure that they they were vested in the country. It was a, in the company. It was a vested interest to have TSMC succeed. So he shopped it around to the Americans and they really wouldn't they wouldn't buy it. And eventually he he stumbled across, well, didn't stumble across, but he came across an investor that was willing, that really did see the vision and was willing to take a punt. And that was Philips, the Dutch company. Uh, which was for a while in the semiconductor industry. And so Philips was actually a, a founding investor and had, I think it was about 30% stake. And they had that 30% stake for, for I think, uh, almost 20 years until they started selling it down when they did their own uh, kind of revamp in the early 2000s. So that really, really helped. It showed that you had someone in the industry on board and you had a certain amount of gravitas. And I think that was the key thing for, for Morris Jung. And the other thing was that he he was American. You know, he, he grew up the, through the ranks of, of Texas Instruments. He was at General Instruments for a brief time before he went to Taiwan. So the industry in America knew who he was. They knew he was the real deal. It wasn't some unknown coming out from a far off land pitching a crazy idea. And so I think those two things together helped him get traction with the early clients who were willing to take a punt. And, and they did so, and they were rewarded with it. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So I want to just, you know, go back to that founding a little bit more. I mean, you mentioned that prior to TSMC, that the Taiwan government for already several years had been sort of like researching and building up this capability. Were there other players who could have been TSMC? Were there other entities trying to vie to be sort of like a um, domestic national champion? And also, you know, like I've read a little bit about um, Asian uh, development models, like particularly in Korea, and this idea of export subsidies for companies that were um, finding traction with uh, sales outside. And I'm curious, like how much that effort to attract that foreign investor, uh, Philips, in that case, was also about proving themselves domestically that TSMC could be the international uh, player that the country should get behind. Yeah, I think that's uh, a valid point. I think that they needed to, well, they needed to sell it to the masses. But, you know, Taiwan was not democratic at the time. It was under martial law. So it's not like they, they had to 
the government of the Kuomintang at the time really needed to worry about elections or, or anything like that. But they did very much uh, have concerns about the you know the Communist Party on the other side of the strait. Uh, you know that that tension continues to this day, and so there was definitely a feeling that. Taiwan had to be a big, strong place. You know, it was called Republic of China and it needed to be strong and powerful and, and make money so that it could fend off the communist insurgency. And so these industrial policies were in a kind of war mentality, not unlike what Korea went through. You know, they went through their own civil war and had a kind of war mentality after the Korean War ended and, and had the tensions with, you know, between North and South. And of course, Japan was rebuilding after uh, its own war uh, with with America and, and much of Asia. So there was a war mentality for a lot of these countries. And that really, I think, uh, directed industrial policy. And without having to worry about democracy, to put it bluntly, they could go in and, and basically make decisions, make decisions for the long term, and and really lay down what they were going to do for the next 10 or 20 years. And so I think that, yeah, getting the the early investor on board in Philips was very, very important. But uh, to, to your earlier point, TSMC wasn't the earliest one, in fact. Uh, born out of Itri, uh, Itri was started uh, you know, in, in the 70s, but born out of Itri in around 1980 was another company called UMC, United Microelectronics. And that company was spun out of Itri, and that was in the semiconductor industry, but it was also designing its own chips. Uh, and in fact, then spun out of UMC in, in the late 90s was a company called MediaTek, which some people might have heard of because they're actually quite a competitor to Intel and Qualcomm and others today. They did have other competitors. It wasn't a given that TSMC would win. Uh, they had competitor, a very strong competitor in UMC. And at the time, there was also competitors overseas in Singapore. There was a company called Chartered that was also looking quite strong for a while until uh, until they just couldn't keep up with TSMC. So TSMC had competition in the early days in foundries, but they were the ones who really stuck to their guns and managed to win out. So just on that winning point, there, there's one other thing from what I understand that Chung actually did that helped TSMC um, get itself into first place in the long run. And that was that they sort of sacrificed profits early on in order to grow their market share very quickly, which is something that we've seen in other big tech companies. I mean, notably Amazon and, and others like that. How was that decision made and, and how important was it to uh, TSMC's long-term success? Well, the key really for, for TSMC cost base, it really comes down to what is the cost, right? And so, of course, if you if you're trying to win over customers, uh, but you're offering a price that is not acceptable or not competitive to them doing it themselves, then you're not going to win. And the cost base for, for the TSMC model is it's mostly depreciation. You spend buckets of money, you know, 10 or $20 billion a year uh, at, the, at the current rate. Uh, and that depreciates pretty quickly, to be honest, in only a few years. So your depreciation is very, very high. And, and once you've built that and bought all the equipment, if it sits idle, then you're not making money, right? So uh, it's it's a immediate cost off the bat. The other one is R&D, and that's where they really haven't skimped. They've been willing to spend buckets of money on R&D, which is engineers. At the end of the day, it's, it's the best engineers money can buy. And so those two things, they basically had to take a hit. They really didn't have a choice. They had to spend money to build the, the capacity and get the technology going. Uh, 
and they needed to spend money on the staff, the engineers to to make the best uh, best they could of this equipment. And then on the flip side, when they're going to their customers and saying, well, we want to charge you this much, well, you have to be price competitive. So in a way, it was it was a deliberate tactic, but also it was also a, 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 an issue of the circumstances of the time. So when we think about like, contract manufacturing in any industry. And of course, the basic model, as you identified, isn't was not new. It's not new to chips. People, there have always been uh, setups where one company designs something, another country does the building. I think for a long time, the uh, the business of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the business of sort of being a fab I mean, I don't think it was seen as particularly particularly sexy. It may have been a profitable business model, an important one. But it seems like in the discussions we're having lately, like something flipped. Like it went from being like, okay, here's the uh, here's the company that takes in your designs and then uh, spits them back out to here's a company that's like a true tech leader. Like they really have something in their manufacturing know-how that is increasingly difficult to be uh, replicated. Was there some inflection point, some flip where like, when did that happen? When did that sort of change of perception start to occur? I, w- I would argue that it happened during the period of the crossover from PCs hmm. to smartphones, because as we know, PCs were Intel's domain and, you know, AMD's domain, AMD turned up to the party and they made their own stuff. Uh, AMD doesn't anymore, but for the longest time, they did make their own their own stuff. They designed it and made it themselves. They call them IDM, right? And then we went into the the smartphone business. There was a short period of time of you know the two G phones, the the you know the Nokia's and so forth. But then we moved into smartphones, and those were powered basically by by companies like Qualcomm and MediaTek and and actually TI, if you might remember, were in that business for a little while. And these were companies that didn't have their own factories. Uh, well, TI did, but, but Qualcomm certainly didn't, and MediaTek didn't, and a lot of companies didn't have their own uh, their own factories. They, because they didn't need to have their own factories, a company like Qualcomm could start up. Anybody could get together a few friends uh, fresh out of grad school and try and start a, a chip design company, and Qualcomm was able to get away with doing that and and was very successful. So. You have a company like Qualcomm becoming very, very successful by saying, you know what, we design the best chips for, for mobile phones and we don't need to manufacture them. And I think the rest of the industry cottoned on. And as we're moving away from the PC era into the smartphone era and then electronic devices and we've got you know, PlayStations and, and handhelds like the Switch and all sorts of other devices, a lot of these chips were no longer the big, hunky, uh, you know, Intel uh, processes that were smaller and lighter. And then, of course, Apple came along and and decided to do their own chips as well. And so I think that's really where we saw the flip from having to have your own factory to being able to do it without. And at the same period of time, the economics just wasn't working out for companies like AMD anymore. And a lot of companies who were making their own were being burdened and saddled by these massive factories and the depreciation costs they had to bear. No matter whether they sold one chip or a million chips, the depreciation was going to be the same. And so if you have a bad year or two, or there's a shift away from your business, such as PCs to something else, and you don't have the chips to keep up, then you're going to be in debt very, very quickly. And so we saw a lot of the companies that were designing and manufacturing for themselves just couldn't keep up economically or financially. 
And some went fabulous like AMD and some just disappeared. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the role of the US and China in all of this? So we mentioned that Taiwan itself is sort of perennially caught between these two forces, uh, the US and, and China, which doesn't actually recognize it as an independent country. What influence has that relationship had on TSMC and how does TSMC feed back into that geopolitical relationship? TSMC's view of the geopolitical relationship is is quite smart and diplomatic in almost the same way that they, they view their customers, where they want to be the neutral supplier to everybody. They want to be everybody's foundry. They don't want to be everybody's partner. And they take that view to the broader, the global geopolitical uh, situation by saying, well, you know, we're not in the American camp, we're not in the China camp, we're just in the camp of whichever clients need us. And that's the line that they, they've been taking for the longest time. Now, what's interesting is I think people misunderstand TSMC because Taiwan and TSMC is so close to China. And of course, many devices are actually assembled in China. Most, most electronic devices are assembled in China. People see it as being, oh, it must be kind of close to China. But in fact, the history and the genesis of TSMC is far more American than it is Chinese. Morris, the two people who've held the chairmanship of TSMC are both American citizens. Uh, Morris Jung, the first one, was not even Taiwanese. Uh, and the, the current one, uh, Mark Liu, is, if you look at the annual report of TSMC, it says that he's American citizen. I suspect he's a dual national. I suspect he's got Taiwan citizenship as well. But in actual fact, they're both Americans. The style and the culture and the processes of the company are very, very American. The corporate governance approach is very, very American. It's very, very different to the way most Taiwanese or Asian companies are run. And so that culture, of course, is very, very important. And the clients for the longest time have been American. Yes, the devices get assembled in China, but all those big name semiconductor clients, the ones that, that pay the bills, they're all American. And so the relationship is much, much closer to America than it is to China, even though China, of course, is a large buyer of chips now. And of course, is the place where so many uh, semiconductors are then installed inside devices. The relationship is much, much closer to America than China. Of course, it may change in the future. Uh, and both sides want to kind of drag TSMC to their side. But you know what? As of right now, you know, January 2021, like 95% or probably 98% of their production capacity is in Taiwan. They've got pretty small production facilities uh, or capacity in China. And of course, they're going to do something in Arizona, which will be at a similarly small scale. But Taiwan still is the heart and soul of TSMC. So just on that note, on the idea of TSMC being quite smart in maintaining a, a neutral stance or trying to maintain a neutral stance between the US and China, how long do you think they can keep doing that, given that semiconductors seem to be uh, becoming you know, rapidly politicized and tech in general is becoming politicized. So we just saw, well, over the past couple of years, we've seen the U.S. announce all these restrictions on uh, semiconductor technology in the past week or so. Again, we're recording this on January 12th. We've seen the U.S. announce fresh sanctions on Chinese military firms. And meanwhile, China is saying that it is going to allow people to sue 
international companies if they comply with U.S. sanctions. It feels like remaining neutral is becoming more and more difficult in the current environment. Of course, everything could change when the new U.S. administration comes in. But in the meantime, it it does feel like companies are going to be forced to choose sides. Yeah, Tracy, I think I think that's the key issue. And I think that's one of the most important things that we need to consider in this this whole situation. In fact, I've been arguing for for more than five years that there's this uh, Berlin Wall of tech uh, brewing between uh, America and China or American and Chinese spheres of influence. Even before Donald Trump came to power, that was already going to happen. Now, Trump clearly accelerated a lot of those moves, but it was already underway. TSMC wants to sit on that fence. They've been very good at sitting on that fence, but I've argued in columns over the last couple of years that they can't do it forever. They are going to have to choose sides. Now, I've got a lot of pushback from people at TSMC and others in the industry saying, no, 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 we're neutral, we'll always be neutral, we can manage to be neutral forever. And I just don't agree. I think that we saw that with the Huawei situation over the last couple of years, when at one point, the US basically said almost directly to TSMC without naming, like, you shall not make chips for Huawei anymore. And they had to stop right a ground to a halt now that may open up again under a new administration in in dc but that was really should have been a wake-up call to management at tsmc that you can't sit on the fence any longer and i think that they are they're realizing now they've they've got they've hired some new lobbyists a former intel uh, lobbyist amongst others uh, in dc to help their cause i think they now realize they can't sit on that fence forever but they're going to try to hold on as long as they can before they have to choose sides and when they do they're going to choose the american hmm. side that's where their bread is buttered it really seems like kind of stressful though for the world like if literally you can't come up with a piece of electronics that in some way hasn't been touched by tsmc and the government can just say, don't work for that company anymore. And there's no alternative to TSMC anywhere near its scale. Like it's like a, just a pretty, it seems like a pretty big uh, sort of choke point uh, for everything. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you were to go back to the year 2000, when everyone was using Windows PCs, can you imagine a government saying you can't use Windows anymore? And Android, uh, sorry, not Android, but Linux wasn't really coming along yet. Can you imagine the, 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 the problems and the trouble that would happen? That'd be the kind of equivalent today. If you were to be told you can't use TSMC and Huawei struggled, they, oh my God, the problems they faced in, in not being able to use TSMC, they're putting in rush orders, rush orders to the last minute so that, so that TSMC would churn stuff out and get it out the door before the, the barriers came down. Uh, and that's really caused a lot of problems for Huawei and they don't really have a backup source. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. 
you need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. So, I, you know, one of the one, one of the themes and one of the big things we we're talking about is this sort of like tech advantage that they're building up such scale, such manufacturing know-how, ability to do it at an excellent quality, at improving price. Um, Intel, as we know, stumbling with their own manufacturers. In fact, there are reports that uh, Bloomberg ourselves have reported about perhaps Intel, perhaps uh, outsourcing some of its manufacturing to TSMC. Talk to us about the tech edge that the company is building and how difficult it is for even one of the largest uh, competitors, let alone some of the smaller competitors, to match them in terms of uh, price and quality. Semiconductors are really tough. They've always been tough, but they're getting tougher and tougher because we're now at this, you've heard about Moore's Law and the idea that we're, we're getting to the end of Moore's Law or beyond Moore's Law. But we're getting to some really, really tough ends of, of semiconductors are essentially a mix of, of chemical engineering with physics uh, and electronic engi- electrical engineering. And they're getting to the point now with this new EUV technology that there's very, very few companies that can A, afford to buy this EUV equipment and B, have the know-how, including the staff and the processes to run it. So even if someone else was managing to get their hands on a one or $200 million piece of equipment uh, that can do the latest stuff, there's not many people who could run it. And so it becomes this, this self-fulfilling prophecy that TSMC is ahead of everybody else. And because they're ahead of everyone else, they get all the best orders and, and all the money and they've got really nice fat margins. They've got one of the largest operating margins in the tech sector. And nobody else can compete because they don't have the money to keep up, which means they don't have the money to buy all the equipment, which means they don't have the money to hire the best engineers and so on and so forth. And we really are at that point where uh, TSMC, a lot of people see that they, they're unassailable. I mean, of course, they can mess up and they probably will mess up. But we're now at this point where money talks and it's not just money. It's the know-how. It's the store of knowledge that they've built up over 30 years that no one else can get near, not even Intel. And when Intel stumbles, you know that things are getting really difficult in the chip industry. So what would a mess up actually look like for TSMC? Or what would it take for them to lose this top spot that they currently have in the industry? Well, I think uh, there's one thing they could be losing the top spot. And I guess to Samsung is probably the only other company that might you know take over from them. And, and Samsung is a very, very strong competitor. And they were neck and neck for a while. And, and I think Samsung will come back again. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of their own orders in the NAND and DRAM uh, business. So that really helps them push their own semiconductor manufacturing. But in terms of TSMC, you know, having a bit of a nosedive or any, any fall, I think there's actually three areas that they could uh, they could face problems. The first one 
I think is that they could be a victim of their own success in that they are always at the cutting edge with the most incredibly good uh, foundry technology to the point where their technology is so good that nobody really needs it. Like if you think of the the CPU wars between Intel and AMD of 20 years ago, uh, it was the coolest thing to be the one with the fastest clock speed. But today, nobody cares about clock speed, right? Nobody really pays attention. They, maybe they care about how many cores are in a CPU. But all that kind of uh, chest thumping is gone in the CPU industry. And I think that we'll see a point in the future where maybe it won't be the leading companies like Apple or Qualcomm or Huawei who say we don't need the latest technology, but maybe one of their top 10 customers, maybe the 10th largest customer says, you know what, we're going to sit out this, this round of new technology. The previous round is good enough for us. You know, the, the, the N minus two, uh, which is, you know, two generations old, that's good enough for now. We'll, we'll stick with that. But TSMC, of course, has spent all this money to upgrade. And then, of course, another client might drop off and say, you know what, it's getting a bit expensive. What's What we've got now is good enough. We'll stick with that. And so I think we could see TSMC being too good and being a victim of their own success in that regard. The other area where I think that they could really kind of come down is, is if there is a, a slowdown in the tech industry that is so vast that it could really cut into their margins and their costs and so forth. Uh, because even though they're the best in the world, you know, people just don't have the money to buy things. Now, of course, we all thought this pandemic might be yet a year ago when it was starting to unfold. We thought that the tech industry was going to come to its knees. It didn't pan out that way. And then the other thing, actually, that I think TSMC has to worry about is is power, like energy, electricity. The new technologies, uh, the new EUV machines, guzzle a lot of energy. In fact, in, in the, there's three science parks in Taiwan, the North, Center, and South. The South Science Park, which is where the Apple chips are made, actually had to rush in. The, the power company had to rush in new transformers to feed enough electricity into the science park, into TSMC's factories, because they are such power hogs. And... Taiwan actually has a power problem. Taiwan, for political reasons, is starting to shut down its nuclear power stations. Nobody wants coal, and the renewable energy ideas that are coming on are not coming on quickly enough. And so Taiwan, in fact, just just a week ago, UMC arrival faced a power outage, and Taiwan has faced power outages. And this is a pending crisis. This is a looming crisis for the entirety of Taiwan. And if they don't get their act together, this could really hurt TSMC big time. So there are a few landmines out there that TSMC could step on, and not all of them will be will be up to itself to avoid. It'll need help from the government. Another question that I have is, so we've been talking about how like some of these incumbent tech giants are, you know, they're going further up the tech stack themselves some of these huge cloud players designing their own servers, designing their own silicon. Um, we had an episode where we talked about Apple. Could some of these companies, these tech giants that have uh, tremendous amounts of money ever have a competitive reason to get into manufacturing chips themselves? I don't think so. I don't see why a Google or a Facebook or a Microsoft or anyone like that would want to get into the business. Right. Um, it would take 
probably in the order of a willingness on the part of a CFO or a CEO to burn maybe 20 or $30 billion. Like, I'm not joking, because TSMC is going to be spending 10 to 20 next year. It spent 10 to 20 last year. That's just on the equipment. And then you've got to get the engineers. And sad to say, the best semiconductor manufacturing engineers, not the design engineers, the best semiconductor manufacturing engineers are really all in Asia now, distributed amongst the Koreans, the Japanese, and the Taiwanese, and more and more in China. Now, there you do still have Intel, and, and we shouldn't count out Intel now. Intel is still a very, very solid company. They're definitely struggling right now, but they have very, very good engineers. So if you're an American company thinking, I want to get into the chip game, I don't think any board of directors would sign off on that, to be honest. I think you'd be, you'd be burning a lot of money for not a lot of upside. Why do they need it? They've got TSMC to do that for them. So here's something that I'm still struggling with a little bit, and we've talked about it on other episodes, is this idea of learning by doing the link between semiconductor design and semiconductor manufacturing. Some of these red-hot chip companies, like, say, uh, an NVIDIA, do they are there ever going to be risks to their business model that they aren't more intimately involved with the manufacturing aspect of the job and are sort of strictly design or is that is that sustainable? No, I think that is a risk. I don't think it's a a risk for the near term. I think it's a risk for maybe 10 or 20 years out. I mean, quantum computing is is kind of around the corner. I don't think we're going to see quantum computers next year, but you know, that's the thinking is in in the next generation, uh, so say 20 years, quantum computers will be out there. And and quantum computing is just, it turns on its head the semiconductor industry because instead of having ones and zeros, you've got qubits and, and, and some kind of mid-state between off and on that is, you know, different to the base of how semiconductors work now, which is very binary. It's literally a, a transistor is on or a transistor is off. And you write all of your code and you design semiconductor um, circuits around this basic logic gates, this idea of on and off. And quantum computing uh, is very, very different. And so if that comes through, it may be in the best interest of someone like an NVIDIA to say, you know what, we, we want to dabble in making it ourselves because we, we think we know the best way to do it. And maybe someone like NVIDIA would say, you know, we're going to t- start a little test fab just, you know, here in Silicon Valley and, and play around with it and see how we do. And maybe they'll discover that it works well for them and they get a lot of orders and they decide that this is something they can scale up. But they would have to be designing and, and kind of discovering the technology themselves to do so. I don't think you can set up shop tomorrow uh, and get that technology off the shelf. So much of what any semiconductor maker is doing now is very, very proprietary to the point where nobody else could copy it, even if they were to take over the factory. Like if 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 for example, China invaded and got access to TSMC factories and TSMC engineers disappeared. I don't think they would know what to do with it. So you'd have to have that fundamental knowledge and be really be building that knowledge from the ground up. And I think there's a possibility that someone like an NVIDIA, maybe AMD, or maybe a chip company we haven't come across yet decides that actually we want to have a closer relationship with manufacturing. And in fact, I think the company that is very, very closely connected to manufacturing is probably Apple. As Apple goes down the Apple Silicon path, I think we'll see them get a bit more involved in the manufacturing process. 
What scope is there for government policy to play a role when it comes to encouraging domestic industries that are able to compete with TSMC? So, for instance, in China, we know that the government there has already announced its intentions to build up its own chip manufacturing capacity. We've talked a lot in this podcast about the idea that, you know, more than half of the world's semiconductors are coming from this one company that's on a rather vulnerable island caught between two very, very big geopolitical forces. If countries recognize chips as strategically important, will they be trying to encourage uh, their own domestic production? And how successful do you think they might be in that? Yeah, I, I think that's very, very true. I think uh, both both uh, Beijing and, and Washington have recognized semiconductors as being of national security and geopolitical interest to them. China has recognized that for 20 years. But you know what? They're still, to be blunt with you, they're not really doing that well. They, people say, oh, China's catching up, China's catching up. And that's true. But it's not like TSMC and everyone else is standing still. They're still you know, moving forward in leaps and bounds. And, and SMIC, uh, Semiconductor Manufacturing International, uh, which is kind of, I guess, the most famous of the flag bearers in China, is really still struggling to get close to a company like TSMC. And they really can't replace TSMC, for example, if, if Huawei needs to outsource to somebody else. So I think China is a really good example of how difficult it is that with even with endless amounts of money and very, very smart you know, engineers, you know, China has really good engineers, right? But they're just not as good as the Taiwanese or even the Americans or the Japanese or Koreans, right? And then the other side is, of course, the United States. They would like to get their chip glory back. But, you know, one of the big problems is if you look at Silicon Valley, like literally that stretch of land we call Silicon Valley, almost no silicon is made there anymore, right? In fact, there's more silicon made in Arizona, where Intel has a factory, than is made in, in California. Oh. Uh, that's that's data I checked out. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Arizona is the new Silicon Valley, so that's part of the problem that any government will face. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump wanted to get things going uh, using you know state and commerce and various other departments to to push that forward. It remains to be seen whether Biden will will uh, take that forward, but. America does have a chance to bring back and revitalize its chip industry, and I think the way they will do it will be semi national interest protectionist policies such as you know any new equipment that goes into uh department of defense server farm must have chips made in america that kind of thing you know you put up national security policies and that basically means they're all if you want to sell to these companies you have to make it on our terms which probably means on american soil so that's what they're doing with tsmc they're trying to get tsmc to set up and tsmc will set up in arizona and I think if you were to take that to its logical conclusion, I can imagine where there would be some kind of technology transfer where companies outside of the United States, uh, Taiwanese or Japanese or Korean companies will be incentivized and and pushed to transfer some of the technology or do joint ventures with American companies to help transfer that technology back, which would be a beautiful irony because the Asian countries got their technology from America 50 years ago. So it would really be a nice uh, kind of closing of the loop if America then started to have the technology transfer come back the other way. Tim, that was that was fantastic. It's, it's It answered a bunch of questions that we have. It's sort of the perfect uh, way to move the story forward for us. So really appreciate you joining us. 
No problem. It's fun to chat to you guys. Thanks, Tim. Crash course in TSMC. Yeah, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. You know, I think that last question that you asked and his answer really helped put some pieces together for me about, say, like the challenge that uh, China has in sort of replicating a world class chip system. And it really sort of the whole story of TSMC and really all of this and how much of this knowledge is just embedded in the engineers and the processes that have been going on forever. This idea, like you cannot replicate it just with money. You could throw an infinite, literally infinite amount of money at something or virtually infinite, but there's no way to sort of recreate that know-how overnight. I think it's just a a really, uh, really important thing. Yeah, I think one of the things that's standing out in all of these episodes is just how deep the moat is around semiconductor expertise. The more I learn about it, the more difficult it seems to me to, you know, catch up to these players and in particular TSMC, which, as we just discussed, has this big leading position in the industry. The other thing I loved was that last uh, bit of irony from Tim, this idea that uh, the U.S. might end up doing tech transfers to import semiconductor expertise uh, after having exported it many, many years ago. I, lo- I love how we come full circle in that way. But I guess just going back to the other point about the idea that there's this deep moat around uh, foundries and semiconductor manufacturing. I mean, 20 or 30 years ago, a lot of people wouldn't have expected Taiwan to have built up an industry like this. So I guess things can change over the long term. Yeah, things can change over the over the long term. And uh, Tim sort of identified some things that over time could perhaps erode TSMC's moat or maybe some different models whereby, uh, as he mentioned, maybe companies don't feel they need to pay for always the state of the art as uh, tech changes. But I really do think that drove home this idea. It's like the, the sort of the whole thing, just the compounding advantage that TSMC is building up. And all you have to do is look at the company's stock price. And I think it's now a 600 or $700 billion company almost, which puts it in league with some of the real, you know, huge tech winners. You can see this is increasingly, this moat, this advantage is increasingly reflected in the uh, investor perceptions of the company. Absolutely. All right. So now my question is, how many more semiconductor episodes are we going to be doing? I think we have one more. Uh, I think we maybe that we could maybe pause. I think we're going to be talking to one of our uh, old favorites, Dan Wang, pretty soon to really sort of figure out, okay, basically a year post COVID, how is the state of China's tech industry and where they really stand with all of this? So but I think that'll be the last one for now. For now is the key here, because I mean, I'm I'm joking a little bit because you wanted to turn all thoughts into a a semiconductor podcast. But I do think another one of the standouts from all these conversations is just how important this technology is going to be in the future. And this idea that it really is becoming a strategic asset. I've seen some people compare it to um, oil in the sense that it underpins all these different things 
in the global economy. So I, I do think this is going to come up again and again and again. Yeah, no, totally. Like, and I hadn't really even thought about you know that point about the U.S. putting pressure on TSMC not to sell chips to Huawei. That's super interesting in its own right. Like, here is this company that's in Taiwan that uh, China itself would you know Taiwan uh, from China's view is part of China, and yet still from the business perspective and sort of the way things are that it's the U.S. that can pressure TSMC not to build for. Uh, Huawei than the other way around. Right. So we've spent, you know, all this time talking about resiliency of supply chains and worrying about what happens if, you know, there's a pandemic in the country where you manufacture something that's vital for your final product, or if uh, sanctions come in that suddenly cut off a supplier or something like that. And here we have an area where The impact could be really, really strong, but also it seems likely that because of the strategic importance of semiconductors, they will actually be targeted by countries that are trying to gain a tech advantage. Absolutely. Uh, It's uh, it's super, super interesting dynamics that I hadn't really thought of at all before uh, prior to this conversation. All right. So we're all uh, semiconductor enthusiasts and nerds now. Shall we leave it there? Yeah, let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Tim Colpin. He's on Twitter at T. Colpin. And check out all of his uh, columns at Bloomberg Opinion. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle and podcasts. Thanks for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.